morning, church. Welcome back to our series through the Ten Commandments that we're calling Law School. If you've been with us through most of this series, or maybe you just have some general familiarity with the Ten Commandments, it can seem like, at least on the surface, that the commands are mainly meant to show us the wrong way to live that we should avoid. Because if you think about it, nine out of the Ten Commandments have some form of you shall not. So in a sense, that's true. These are things we we should just avoid doing. But one of our goals through this series has been to show you how the Ten Commandments are also meant to teach us the right way to live that we should pursue in order to discover true freedom in living in the way that God designed us. And, And to see the commandments through that lens, sometimes it can be really helpful to take those negative commands, the ones that say you shall not, and kind of flip them around and ask what their positive counterpart is. And if you were with us for the last couple of weeks, you'll remember that's basically what we did with commandments 7 and 9. Last week, Pastor Ryan talked about you shall not commit adultery by basically showing us that you shall view sex as good and powerful and something to enjoy in its proper context. The week before that, we looked at you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor by really saying that you shall speak the truth in love to your neighbor. So today we're going to look specifically at the Eighth Commandment, which simply says, you shall not steal. And following the same pattern, our our kind of guiding question today is, well, if we shall not steal, how then shall we live? What is, you might say, the antidote to a life of theft? And thankfully, we don't have to guess at that answer because the Apostle Paul answers it for us explicitly in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. So let me go ahead and read that to you here on the front end. This is going to be where we're hanging out for the majority of our time together, just a single verse today. Ephesians 4, 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. If I had to summarize that verse as simply as possible, I would just say, you shall not steal Instead, you shall work. So what I want to do for the rest of our time together today is really just explain and expand upon this idea of work as kind of the solution or the antidote to stealing by really just following the structure of this verse and answering three questions. So the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this verse, he starts it with a negative command, which is really meant to answer the question, who's he talking to? That's the first thing we'll talk about. Then he switches gears and and, and has a positive command, which really answers the question, well, then how should we live? And then the last thing he does in the verse is gives the motivation behind it, answering the question, why should I live this way? So that's going to be, broadly speaking, the outline for our time together today. So let's start with that first part of this verse what I called the negative command. So Ephesians 4.28 really just starts with a reiteration of the eighth commandment. Let me read it to you again. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. So the answer to our question, who's he talking to, is kind of obvious. He's speaking to thieves. The real question, though, is what kind of thieves specifically is he speaking to here? And he doesn't go into a lot of like explicit detail to answer that question, but there are some clues in the verse and around the verse that can maybe help us kind of sketch out a fuller picture of the people he's talking to. And the first clue is is pretty simple. We're going to look specifically at the Greek word he chooses to use for stealing. The Greek word there is klepto, which 
Some, I hear some of you laughing. We're familiar with that phrase even in the 21st century. We use it to talk about people that have a mental disorder that compels them to take things that don't belong to them, kleptomaniacs. But in Paul's day, that word was typically used not to refer to violent robbery, but specifically to refer to secret stealing, taking things when somebody's not looking. So hold on to that thought. That's the first clue as to who he's talking about. Not, these are not violent criminals, but they're people who are generally taking things when nobody's looking. The, the second clue is what he goes on to say after he tells them to stop stealing. He says, you must work with your own hands. We'll talk more about that in a second. What I want to point out here is if the Apostle Paul commands them to work, then two things must be true about these people. Number one, they must be able to work, and there must be work available to them, or else he wouldn't have commanded it. Now, Paul does have a category for people that really couldn't work and really did need financial assistance. He talks about them at the end of this verse when he says, there are people that you should share with who are in need. And if you read his letters, he's probably talking there about elderly widows, orphans, the the disabled, the sick, people like that. The point is that the thieves he's talking to here are not those people. These are able-bodied people who can work to earn what they need or want, but instead choose to nonviolently take what they need or want without earning it. Now, before we go to the third clue, let's just kind of look at that picture that we've painted. That really could that could really describe lots of different groups of people, but in Paul's day specifically, writing in this first century Mediterranean world, I'm going to argue that he had at least two categories of people specifically in mind here. The first category would have, been, would have been poor agricultural workers, which was most people at that time, whose employment and income could change drastically depending on a lot of things outside of their control, the season, the weather, locusts, dishonest and greedy landowners, you name it. So for some of these people, there were times when work could be so scarce and pay could be so low that it would, it would be easier for them sometimes to just steal something from their employer when they weren't looking rather than take the harder road of going and finding other work in, in another field, literally another field, or maybe a different sector of the economy. So when you look at that group of people, stealing wasn't a quote-unquote necessity, but there was a lot of pressure to do it economically, pressure from other people that were doing it, and it was just simply the easier route to take. So that's the first category he most likely has in mind. The second group of people that I'm going to argue he probably has in mind, at least some degree, are people who are choosing not to work, not because they can't, but because they're mooching off of others. We've all heard that phrase before. And this may be, this may be one reason why he specifically at the end of this verse commands them to share with those in need. His point being, stop mooching off the community and start contributing to the community. The, peop- the, the reason why I think he's got these people in mind, at least in part, is because if you jump over to his letter to the Thessalonian church, he's got two of those letters to the Thessalonian church, he specifically and explicitly talks about that kind of group of people. These are people that when you read the Thessalonian letters, you get the sense that there were, there were Christians in that church that believed that Jesus' return was so imminent that they had literally stopped working and were living off the generosity and compassion of their brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's in the letter to 2 Thessalonians that we get Paul's famous one-liner that people often quote out of context where he says, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. His point there, well, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? His point there is not let the unemployed starve, that'll teach him. His point is if you're able to work and work is available, you shouldn't be mooching off the church to meet your needs. You should be earning to meet your needs. 
All right, so that's kind of the general categories of people he's talking to, but it really could include lots of different kinds of people. It's broad enough of a picture. I told you there's one third final clue here that can help us kind of fill this out. I would argue it's kind of the, the most obvious clue, but one that I think we skip right over. So Ephesians 4.28, some English translations of the Bible will have this verse say, let him that stole steal no more. Maybe that's what your translation says. And wording it that way implies that this is a person or these are people that used to steal in the past. They stole, but they don't do that anymore. We're just encouraging them not to return to that way of life. But I chose specifically to use the New International Version of the Bible this morning because it really captures the original Greek a lot more accurately. Listen to what it actually says. Anyone who has been Stealing, that's the Greek there, who has been stealing must steal no longer. So think about that. Paul isn't merely talking to people who used to steal in the past, but to people who are still potentially stealing in the present. Here's why that's important. Remember, he is writing this command in a letter to a church full of people that are professing to follow Jesus. And, and the reason why that's important is, is what that says is that Paul considers these people who are, who are potentially actively still leading a life of stealing, he considers them to be genuine Christians. Earlier in this chapter, he, he describes the people that he's talking to when he gives these commands as people who have been called by God. They have God as their father. Later in the chapter, he's going to say their sins have been forgiven. So, so on the surface, that might seem strange that he could talk about people that are actively stealing as though they're genuine Christians. But here's why it actually makes perfect sense and why I think it's important for us to point out. Here's what I want to say about that. What this reminds us is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not stop doing wrong, reform yourself, then you can come to Jesus and get forgiveness. That's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is right here, Right now, where you are, even as a sinner and a wrongdoer, come to Jesus, find forgiveness, and He will transform you. And that transformation that He accomplishes is both in one sense immediate, but in another sense it can be and is very gradual. That's why Jesus explains the Christian life with this metaphor of being born again. But when you think about it, that is the perfect imagery for what it means to be a Christian. Think, think about natural birth. Think about when a baby is born out of the womb. Immediately, there is an obvious and immediate transformation, right? The baby's been a human in the womb the whole time, but now the baby's out. The umbilical cord is cut. You can, you can see this human being in front of you. You can hold this baby. You can hear this baby cry. You can feed this baby. You can hear this baby cry. You can change its diaper. Did I mention you can hear this baby cry? If I have any parents in the room, we know when a baby's born, there's a real immediate transformation. Amen. Somebody's got me back there. And, and you know it, right? It's there. It happens. But in the same sense, babies aren't born as fully mature, perfectly grown adults because that would be super creepy, right? Babies have to grow up. They have to go through stages, each with their own unique you know, difficulties and things of that nature. Here's why I say all of that. The Apostle Paul had no problem recognizing that some of the Christians in his church were imperfect Ten Commandment breakers because he understood that all of the Christians in his church were imperfect Ten Commandment breakers, right? 
Another image that Paul himself uses for the Christian life is the image of a race. Paul understood that we are all at different stages on this race. Some of us have literally just entered the race. We haven't even changed into our racing uniform yet, and we still look pretty messy. Some of us are a little bit farther, but we've gotten stuck, or maybe we've fallen behind. Maybe we've taken a detour that we shouldn't have taken. And then, of course, there's others of us that are pretty far along, near the finish line, running strong, running confident. But here's the point. We don't help others move forward in this race by judging them for not being where we are, or by telling them you don't belong in the race. We help each other by doing what the Apostle Paul does with these people he considers brothers and sisters in Christ who are still leading a life of stealing. What he does is he comes alongside of them to correct them, teach them, and encourage them. So, we're what? Ten minutes into this sermon now, and maybe you're already feeling a little uncomfortable. Because maybe, maybe what you've been thinking about is, you know what? I've been stealing. And maybe that's a very obvious kind of stealing, like pickpocketing or purse snatching or shoplifting. Or maybe, just think about this for a second, maybe you're more like those agricultural workers we talked about. You have a job, but it's not really the job you like. It's kind of hard. You're not getting paid enough. But rather than work harder to try to earn more or get promoted, or or rather than just take the hard road of simply going and finding another job, what you've decided to do is take the easier road, which means I'll do as little work as possible, which really means that my coworkers and my boss will have to pick up the slack for me, which means you're getting paid to do work that you didn't do that actually somebody else is doing for you. Our culture actually has a phrase for this now. It's been pretty trendy ever since COVID. They call it quiet quitting. The Bible would say it's a form of stealing. Maybe, though, you don't really resonate with that. Maybe you resonate more with the Thessalonian church, what we would call the moochers, right? Maybe, you're, maybe you've been living off the generosity of your parents or your grandparents or food stamps or unemployment benefits or charity, and none of those things in and of themselves are wrong. But here's the catch. Maybe you've been living off of all that even though you know you're able to work, but you've convinced yourself it's just too hard to find a job, at least to find a job that I really like. Or maybe, let's let's do one more category. Maybe it's not stealing. Maybe you've sat through one of these other Ten Commandment teachings and you know you've been breaking that one. If any of that describes you, here's the point that I'm trying to make by, by pointing out that Paul considered these people that were stealing to be Christians. Here's the good news for you. You're not a lost cause. You're not unwelcome. You're not even unique. You're a sinner like me and like everybody else in this room. And the good news is sinners are the only kinds of people that Jesus came to save. But, but when Jesus saves you, he does it all the way. He doesn't just forgive your, your past. He transforms your present and your future. The question is, well, what does that actually look like in the context of Ephesians 4.28? And that brings us really to the next movement of this verse, the second major point in this teaching. So if, if the first part of Ephesians 4.28, the negative command really answered, who's he talking to? We've established that. The second part, this positive command, really helps us understand, well, how should they now live? Or as Paul puts it at the beginning of chapter 4 of Ephesians, how should we walk worthy of the new calling that we have as followers of Jesus? So here's what it says. Let me read it to you. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer. We've got that part. But must work doing something useful with their own So what he's saying here is if you've placed your faith in Jesus, he's called you out of the path of stealing and into the path of work. Now, that's not 
I don't think for anybody, a surprising command. Even even secular, non-Christian societies understand that we would rather have people working to earn their possessions than stealing from other people to get possessions. That's kind of a bare minimum for healthy communities and societies. So, So saying stop stealing and start working, that alone is not very unique. What I do think is unique here is how Paul describes this work. What I want to argue is what he's really doing here in this single verse is giving us almost a miniature vision of Christian work, the way that a Christian should understand what work is like and how we should actually go about doing it. So let's start. Let's start to see this vision by just, again, looking at the Greek word that he uses when he talks about work. This word refers specifically to strenuous work that produces fatigue or tiredness. Now, hold on to that thought. He chases that by saying that the work you do should be something with your own hands. So when you put those two ideas together, it's obvious he's talking here about hard, exhausting manual labor. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only kind of work that's good or useful or the only kind of work you should do. It is good. It is useful. His point isn't that. Remember who he's talking to. We just established this a second ago. He is most likely mainly talking to an audience of people who are poor, unskilled, and uneducated, who have chosen to take the easy road of stealing, not that they're rich people steal too, but this is who he's talking to. They've chosen to take the easy road of stealing rather than the harder road of working. And here's this point. If you're going to follow Jesus and come out of this life of taking other people's possessions and enter into a life of honestly earning your own, then the path you're going to have to take, at least initially, is probably not going to be your dream job. It's probably not going to be corner office with a window, three weeks paid vacation, probably not going to have the option of working from home. The hours are going to stink. The work's going to probably be tedious and repetitive. You're probably going to have a boss or coworkers or customers that are difficult to deal with. You're going to go home tired all the time. In other words... Paul's saying something we all have to come to grips with eventually, which is sometimes work is not going to be what you wish it would be. Let me say that again. What Paul is telling us here is sometimes work is not going to be everything you wish it would be. And the correct Christian response to that is not, well, I just won't work then. That's what led them to stealing in the first place. The answer is, this is going to sound tough, but we're going to tease this out You have to accept this reality and just simply get to work. All right. The reason I said that that's kind of a unique idea is because for a a long time in our culture now, we've been preaching a gospel that's really incompatible with that realistic understanding of work. And I'm not talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the gospel, I'll call this the gospel of self-actualization, and we've all been influenced by this to some degree, so just, just have an open mind for just a moment while I explain this. You may not understand or, or be familiar with that phrase, but I know we all know this when we hear it. So here's what that means. This is the belief that the most important thing in life is to discover and express your true self, and only you can discover and express that true self. You're the only one that can do it. And, and what this gospel says is that everything and everyone, from your parents to school to the government to your employer, everything and everyone must either be a means to help you do that or it must be an obstacle to be removed. Now, I think we're all familiar with that. It's all over our entertainments, all over our politics. It's everywhere, right? And I think, wrongfully, that we tend to associate that mentality with the younger generations, the often maligned millennials. I am a millennial, 
So let me just say, to quote my friend Billy, we didn't start the fire. (laughs) Some of you are saying, who's this friend Billy? Look up the reference. We didn't start this fire. It's been going on for a long time. There's a gentleman named Cal Newport. He's an MIT trained scientist, um, Georgetown University professor. He's written some books on work. And I was reading an article he wrote in the New Yorker, and he basically, he traces out the history of how this gospel of self-actualization, of self-discovery and self-expression has affected people's view of work since at least the baby boomer generations. Let me, I've got a point I'm making here. Let me just trace this out very briefly for you. And I know this is going to resonate with you, depending on which generation you fall in. So here's, here's what he argues. People born between the 1940s, 1960s, that's baby boomers. He said that they are the first modern generation to really view work as an obstacle to self-actualization. So what happened is in the 1960s and 70s, as these people kind of came of age, they just in large numbers decided to abandon the workforce and go try to discover themselves by living in communes or in the back to the land movement. These are people that we would call hippies. Can I get a representative? All right. All right. They're here. They're here. What they found, most of them, is that that didn't work. They didn't really discover themselves. That was hard. That kind of fell apart. So most of them grew out of that, went back to the workforce, had their own children. That's the generation especially that we start calling millennials. So they realized at that point, well, I've got to give my children, millennials, a different vision of work. It can't just be stop working. So their vision of work that they passed on to millennials, this is what I heard growing up all the time, I know it's going to resonate with somebody, is find work you love or follow your passion or heart, any of those, right? That phrasing, follow your passion or follow your heart as career advice, really was non-existent until about the 1990s when it exploded on the scene when I was coming of age. Follow your heart and work. So now, so now work isn't an obstacle to self-actualization. It's just one of the means where you actually discover yourself, which is a fine idea. I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad idea. But here's the problem. 9-11 happened. And then all these economic crises that followed, and all of us that had been told to go find work you love had our bubble burst when we couldn't find work we loved. All we could find was what was available, and we had to take it. That's the story of many people. Now we get to our last kind of working age generation, Gen Z. Got any Gen Zers in the house? I had one this morning. No way. Gen Z? Nobody? All right. I'll just, I guess I just won't say anything about them. No, I will. Here's, here's. Gen Z is the first generation to fully come of age with smartphones and social media. So for many of them, it's still all about finding work you love. That's still true um, and, and, and discovering your true self. But now that work isn't just one vital part of their life, but because of our 24-7 attachment to technology, that work is now entangled with every waking moment of many of their lives. And what we're discovering kind of in real time right now is that's not the path to self-discovery. That's the path to self-destruction. Now, you're asking, why are you telling me all this? Here's why. For, For all three of those major generations that are living as adults in our society today, the world around us has told us that work must either be and do all that I dream for it to be and do and help me be my best and true self. And if not, I either must reject it or be crushed by the disappointment of it. And and living in that kind of culture, there really isn't a lot of tolerance for the harsh reality that Paul speaks of here, that sometimes work just isn't going to be what you want it to be, but you have to do it anyway. The irony here 
is that Christians, who are so often seen as the most gullible and the most naive in our society, we are the ones who are the most enabled and the most equipped to be realistic about this view of work. And here's why. Because we have a view of the world. We've been given a story in Scripture, the Christian story, that helps us understand that work is broken because the world itself is broken. And it's been that way literally since the beginning, since the Garden of Eden, and God put the first two humans in the garden, and they rebelled against His rule. When that happened, if you've read that story before, I'm sure you're familiar with it, there were consequences that came. One of those was God cursed the ground so that now if they wanted to make it bear fruit, they would have to do so through sweat and blood and tears. In other words, the curse was that now work will often be hard and painful. Now, of course, we also have the rest of the story as Christians. We have a hope that this isn't the way it's always going to be. But the point is right now in the real world that we live and we as Christians have a framework for understanding the world around us that allows us to take it as it is, even as we look forward to and strive to make it as it should be. We as Christians are empowered to simultaneously be optimistic and realistic about work in the world in general. Now, if work isn't always everything we want it to be, and I think we all know that by experience, the question is how then should we do our work? We just said the answer isn't to reject work, and the answer isn't just to become a cynic, hate work, do the least amount possible. Paul tells us the Christian answer to how we should do our work right here in the middle of verse 28. He says, we must work doing something useful. Now, I'm going to ask your forgiveness. I know we've, we've already talked a lot about Greek words in this sermon. Just humor me one more time. The, the word there that's translated here, useful, normally in the Greek uh, is translated as good, just simply good. A more literal translation here would say something like working what is good. So the answer to the problem of hard work, the, way, the, the right way for Christians to approach work is to do good work. Now, you would say, well, what exactly does that mean? This Greek word has at least three shades of meaning, and all three of those shades of meaning are biblical ways of understanding good works. Let me just bullet point them for you real quick. We're we're answering the question, how should our work be good? Here's the first answer. Our work should be good in the moral sense, good as opposed to evil. Now, now some of you out there may have a job that literally creates a morally good product or service. Maybe you're a doctor or a nurse and you, and you heal lives and you save lives. That's morally good. Maybe you work for the intelligence industry and you literally are protecting our nation from terrorism. Morally good. But I would imagine a lot of you probably have a job that you'd say, it's not morally good. It's not morally bad. It's just kind of neutral. It just is what it is. And then some of you, even farther in the extreme, would say, actually, I work for a boss or company that sometimes behaves in wrong ways and believes in evil things. The key thing here, what we're, what we're seeing here is that you are called as an individual to work in a good way no matter how your company or your boss or the service you create is. Now, what that might mean is that you actually have to leave the job you're at. That happens. Sometimes it's too entangled in evil things and you can't be a part of it. That's true. More often than not, though, what it actually looks like is you are called to work in a radically different way than everybody around you. John the Baptist actually confronted this issue after a group of Roman tax collectors and Roman soldiers approached him, and they said, how can we bear good fruit 
in our line of work. So think about that for a second. They are Roman tax collectors and soldiers. They are literally employed by working for the empire that had violently conquered John's homeland. And it was just very commonplace and common knowledge that tax collectors and soldiers often took advantage of and actively harmed the people they were supposed to serve and even their employer. Surprisingly, John doesn't say, quit your job. In Luke chapter 3, you can read it for yourself. What he actually says to them is tax collectors collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, he says, be different. Whatever kind of work you're doing, seek to do good, even if everybody around you is doing bad. That's the first way our work should be good. The second way our work should be good is in the sense that it's actually translated right here in the NIV. It should be useful. It should be beneficial to the people around you, which when you remember who he's talking to, this makes perfect sense. Remember, he's talking to people who had been leading a life of stealing and and probably especially stealing from their employers. They were literally harming the people they were working for and by extension, their co-workers and by extension, society in general. And now he's calling them to do the opposite. Stop harming those people and actually make their life easier. Do your work in a way that benefits them and is useful for them. Or in other words, he's calling them to do what Jesus says is the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor. Sometimes we treat work as though as though it's like a separate sphere of our lives. Like, I know Jesus wants me to love my neighbor in church and at home and all that kind of stuff, but work is different. But that's not the case at all. Jesus' commands apply to every single sphere of our life, including work. So our work should be good in the sense of being useful in a way that we can love our neighbor. And that really kind of leads right into this last little bullet point. Here's the third way our work should be good in the sense of quality. Christians are called to do their work, not just with honesty and integrity. That's like bare minimum standard. They're also called to do it with skill and with excellence. That's why if you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see this theme over and over. It's going to talk about people who are skillful in war, musicians who are skillfully making music and leading choirs, and stonemasons and carpenters and metallurgists and artists skillful in creating things. It uses the word skillful a lot. And then you get to the New Testament, and all over the New Testament, we see that, that, that God gives his people all unique gifts, things that they are to be exceptionally good at doing. In other words, doing our work well, doing it with excellence is a theme found all over the Bible. Why is that? Because not only does it reflect the perfectly skilled God, who Scripture says wonderfully made us, but it is also one way in which we can love our neighbor no matter what kind of work we do. Let me read you a quote from Dorothy Sayers. She was an English writer and poet. She explained it like this. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling this carpenter is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. She's saying what Ephesians 4.28 here is saying, if you want to follow Jesus well in the workplace, then you need to love your bosses, love your coworkers, love your customers, and one major way you do that is by doing your work with excellence. So let me just kind of recap everything we've discovered here. Followers of Jesus 
are called to leave behind the path of stealing and take the hard road of working for a living. And even when that isn't everything they'd hoped it would be, they aren't to be crushed and disillusioned by that reality. They are to accept it and to choose to do work that is good, excellent, and loving towards those around them. Piece of cake. Let's pray. Let's get out of here. We all do that, right? Absolutely not. It's hard, right? That's, that's a lot harder done than said. It really leaves us with kind of one major question, which is, why should I take that hard road? Why should I do good work, even when it's really painful and nobody around me seems to care? And that really kind of brings us to the final movement of this verse, the motivation. Why should we live this way? And, and the motivation, the motivation that you would expect based off of everything we just said, the motivation you'd expect from verse 28 would probably sound something like this. So he's told us to stop stealing, stop taking other people's possessions and start working. So you would expect it to then say, so that you can get your own possessions, so that you can provide for yourself and maybe by extension your family. That makes kind of logical sense, but that's not what the Apostle Paul says here. That is not the motivation that he chooses to give. So just one more time, listen to the verse in its entirety. Here's what it says. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands. Here's the motivation. That they may have something to share with those in need. You should stop stealing, start working, not simply to provide for yourself, but to provide for people who genuinely can't provide for themselves. Let me say that another way. You should stop taking and start earning so that you can start giving to those who can't earn. And when you think about it, that's the power of Christ to transform lives. He is calling the thief to become a philanthropist, which is amazing. That's an amazing transformation that's expected of people that are following Christ. It can only be accomplished through the power of Jesus. But as, as amazing as that sounds... If we just stop and think about it for a second, I imagine it's going to bring up a question that maybe none of us really want to say out loud, but it's going to bother us if we don't get it answered. Here, here it is. Why is that one of the main reasons we should work? By the way, this is all over the New Testament, not just here in Ephesians 4.28. Why is that one of the main reasons we should work? Why, why should I sweat and bleed and drive myself to exhaustion working to share with those who don't? And I'm going to make a bold claim here. I think we all know the answer to that question without even maybe realizing that we know it. And, and to help you, help you see that, let me, just, let me tell you a personal story. This is to answer the question, why should we work to give to those who didn't work? So here's my personal story. Outside of our house, uh, we have this steep hill that used to be for a long time covered with landscaping fabric and mulch, mainly so we didn't have to mow it. We didn't have to worry about it. It was just there. A few years ago, I decided I wanted to plant grass there. And so I carted out all the mulch and I ripped up all the, all, all the landscaping fabric and I, and I planted the grass seed. And after that entire ordeal, I had a lot more respect, number one, for landscapers because that was long, hard work. But eventually, it paid off. And now I have a hill outside my yard that's covered in luscious green grass. And I have a confession to make. Sometimes, even to this day, I will walk out there and just look at it and just admire. Have you ever done that? Have you ever like finished doing cleaning the house or mowing the yard? And you just like, if you're a guy, it's usually like hands on the hips. Like I have conquered the soil of my castle. That's how you feel, right? Here it is. I did this. I'm admiring. The problem I found 
is that my kids really had no interest in admiring that work. What they wanted to do was play in this grass. Specifically, they wanted to run up this steep hill, now covered in grass, which means they're tearing out in the grass. And to be honest with you, this drove me nuts. It got me bent out of shape because they are taking away what I worked so hard to earn, my precious grass. When I say it out loud, it sounds a lot more foolish than it did in my head. So just give me a second. I'm not still a terrible person. So let's, as time has gone on, here's what I've come to realize. As, as time has gone on, more recently, what I've begun to realize is that working and then forbidding anyone else from enjoying the fruit of my labors is not really a great way to find satisfaction and joy. The real, what I've found is that the real deep and lasting satisfaction has come from watching my kids cart their toys up the hill to play shop or chasing them up the hill with Nerf guns to shoot them in the back as we have a Nerf gun battle or to let them, let them lounge in the hammock that now sits on top of that grass that I planted. What I'm saying is C.S. Lewis once said, our, our joy is only truly consummated when it overflows into praise. And I would say something similar about work. The satisfaction we get from work isn't truly consummated until the fruit of our labor pours over and we share it with others. Now, I just gave you a silly example about my lawn, but we know this is the way it works in all other areas of working life. Composers and musicians don't simply create music to listen to in private. They do it to perform for an audience. Chefs and cooks don't just make food to put on a plate and take pictures of. They want someone to eat it and say, man, that's really good. Stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads, they don't just simply clean the house for their own sanity, although that is one big reason. They also do it to enjoy, to invite other people over. That's where they get the most satisfaction. Come and be a part of our household and enjoy time together. The point is, maybe one of the reasons you aren't finding joy and fulfillment in your work is because you're mainly concerned with what it can give you instead of how it can help you give to others. Now, it may seem kind of counterintuitive at first to think that work works that way that we gain the most joy when we give away the fruit of our labors. But, but when you look at work through the lens of the biblical Christian story, that makes perfect sense. So we've been hanging out in Ephesians 4.28 for really our entire time today. But, but just a few verses before that, same chapter, verse 24, the Apostle Paul tells us why he's giving all these commands. He's not just giving them in a vacuum randomly. He has a purpose behind them. Here's what he says in verse 24, Ephesians chapter 4. He says, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, what he's saying here is God designed you and Jesus saved you so that you can be a new person, have a new self. And, and that new person specifically is made and redeemed to be like God. Well, the question is, well, how can I be like God? That's why he begins then to give us all those commandments, including this commandment in verse 28 that says you should work hard in order to give to others because that's what God is like. I told you earlier that one of the consequences of our fall into sin is that work now is, is often painful and futile. But don't misunderstand me. Work itself was and is never the problem. Work was actually something that God commanded of Adam and Eve before they ever rebelled against his rule. It was a good gift he gave them because he made them in his image to be like him, and he is a God who works, and he's a God who works to give away. Think about the creation story for just a moment in the Bible. 
Um, we, we all know if you read through Scripture, God, God is very clearly self-sufficient, perfectly self-sufficient. He didn't need to create this world. He didn't need to create us, but He did. He worked to make creation all by Himself and then gave it to us to enjoy. In other words, this this selfless, generous work ethic that we're called to do, the reason that's so satisfying is because when we live like that, we're living like we were designed to reflect our maker. But not only did God do this in creation, He also did this in redemption, what we call His work of new creation. So again, Ephesians 4, go back just a few verses earlier than where we've been, verses 7 through 8. Listen to how Paul describes what Jesus Christ has achieved For everyone who believes in him. Listen to this. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, Paul's first century readers would have very much understood the image he's using there. The imagery is one of this victorious general who's defeated his enemies in battle taken them captive, and now he is sharing the spoils of war with his people. And the point Paul is making is that just like that general, Jesus did all of the hard work to win the battle and defeat our enemies. He actually did, if you think about it, he did the opposite of stealing. Jesus rightfully possessed limitless glory and power and prestige and honor. He didn't take those things that didn't belong to him. They were his by rights, and yet he laid them aside to become a weak and poor human. And then we're told that he worked probably for, for decades as a carpenter, waiting for the right time to start his ministry, he worked with his own hands. And then when he did start his ministry, if you read the Gospels, he traveled by foot miles and miles, spreading the good news of God's kingdom. He sacrificed sleep and privacy to heal the sick, feed the hungry, rescue the endangered, teach the crowds, and then finally, literally, By the sweat and blood of his brow, Jesus submitted himself to death on a cross on our behalf. In other words, Jesus did the hard work, work that always wasn't what he wished it would be, to defeat our enemies of sin, devil, and death. And he earned his seat at his Father's right hand and all the glory, power, and honor that came with it. But here's the key. Here's what verses 7 through 8 tells us. He didn't hold on to those spoils of victory with closed fist. He opened up his arms and gave these gifts of grace to his people. Forgiveness, eternal life, the presence of his spirit, a family full of fellow believers that he gifts and skills to help each other get through life. We could keep going and going. The point is, Jesus did not take what wasn't his. He earned it so that he could give it away to those of us that could never earn it. That's the gospel. If Jesus did that for us, how much more then should we do it for others. It's the gospel that gives us the greatest inspiration and the greatest motivation to work hard and to work well in order to share the fruit of our labor with those who didn't earn it. But the gospel doesn't just simply give us an example to follow. It also gives us the freedom and power to actually do it. I'm going to go ahead and call the worship team up as I explain what I mean by that. As long as we treat work as mainly a path to self-actualization, self-fulfillment, then we're always going to have a hard time treating it as a way to fulfill the needs and joys of others. But that's where the gospel can set us free. 
The gospel comes to us and says that work is not the path to finding your true self. Jesus is. That's why Jesus himself said, whoever finds their life will lose it. In other words, if you're trying to find yourself, find your life in a job or in anything else, the irony is that the sad twist of fate is you're actually going to lose it. It's going to crush you. But he goes on to say, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Stop trying to find your life there and come to me because you'll never find it. You'll never find your true life, true self, true identity in work because you were made to find all those things in Christ. That's why he worked so hard to tear down the barrier of sin between you and him. That's why he shares the fruit of his labor with you, because he wants you to discover who he truly made you to be in relationship with him. And he wants to set you free from any compulsion to steal by sharing all the gifts that he won to satisfy your deepest desires. When that happens, when you come to Jesus and find your identity in Him, find your gifts and everything you need in Him, when that happens and only when that happens, will you finally be able to put work in its proper place, not as the source or the enemy of your identity, but as a God-given gift to grow you to be more like Him and empower you to love your neighbor. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I think this is going to sound strange to maybe a world that's skeptical of your truth, but thank you for work. It is a gift from you. It's a way that we reflect you. You're a creator, and you call us to be creators. You're a worker. You call us to work. You're a giver, and you call us to give. What a privilege to be made in your image. And yet, I'll be the first to confess that work in this broken world, and because I'm a broken person, it just isn't always what I wish it would be. Sometimes it's harder than I wish it would be. Sometimes there's friction in relationships. Sometimes I don't produce what I'm seeking to produce. Sometimes it feels so futile. I'm the first to confess that. And because of that, sometimes I'll confess that I've been one of those quiet quitters. I'll just sit here and not do very much. Sometimes I've mooched off of others and let them do the work. I'll be the first to confess that. I know we can all relate to that. But thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us from that vision of work. God, I pray that you would help us to realize that we can't, we can't let work carry all that weight. Only Jesus can carry that weight for us. Help us to truly, truly find our identity and our worth and everything we need in Christ and in Christ alone so that we can be set free from treating work like an idol and instead begin to treat it like a gift. My prayer for everyone listening to me is for those who haven't found that identity in Christ that even today you would open their hearts by your spirit and your word and call them to yourself. And for those who have, that just one more time, give us a refreshing, renewed vision of the life you've called us to live, that we have everything we need in Jesus. Help us to live like it. We love you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for doing all the hard work for us that we could never earn and then sharing those spoils of war with us. We love you. We thank you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.